Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. A lot can happen in the next three years. Like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare tri-term medical plans are available for these changing times. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer budget-friendly, flexible coverage for people who are in between jobs or missed open enrollment. The plans last nearly three years in some states, with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. So for whatever tomorrow brings, United Healthcare tri-term medical plans may be for you. Learn more at UH1.com. Iniesta's in the middle. Torres is trying to find him. It's broken for Fabregas. No, it's Iniesta. This is it. Hello, big interview listeners, and while we prepare a new season of interviews for you, welcome to the first show proper in a new mini-series, World Cup 2010 Revista. Ten years on from Spain's win in South Africa, we'll be tracking their progress in real time, more or less, with the man who followed them from the first training session to the celebrations in the dressing room in Soccer City, that's Graham Hunter. We're going to, in these shows, follow Spain game to game. So today we're going to run all the way up to their opening game, which was against Switzerland. After we finish that, we'll take a little break and then we'll come back and talk some more about what was happening that week or in that period of the tournament elsewhere. So Graham Hunter, are you ready to begin to relive the summer of 2010 all over again? I'm more than ready. Um, I look back at it with 10 years distance and I'm reminded about what an immense uh, professional test it was, how enormously happy it made me. I mean, seven, eight weeks of almost pure happiness, exhaustion. What hopefully we communicate here is the experience of being at a World Cup from start to finish. Not simply the matches, but the little yellow webbed feet that are furiously flapping away in the water underneath the the white elegant down of the long net sw- swan and and the, the travel, the tiredness, the laughs, the integration with the players and really early on beginning to get the feeling that I might be attached to a squad that was going to win a World Cup. So ready, yes, um, uh, but there's a good degree of nostalgia too about the fact that, you know, if I could snap my fingers and be back in this situation that we're about to talk about, I would. Yeah, I should say for people listening to this that we did a little teaser episode uh, that focused on the sort of injury roys of Andres Iniesta trying to make it onto the plane to get to this tournament. And at the start of that, Graham talked a lot about the role that he had at this tournament, which enabled him to have extraordinary access to the Spanish team throughout. So if you're wondering where these stories come from, because we are going to be focusing on the colour, the behind the scenes stuff, the between the game stuff quite a lot. If you're wondering 
how Graham got that close to the to the team. And if you want to know more about the terrible Nick Iniesta was in in the build up to the World Cup in 2010, please go and listen to that teaser episode on the same feed that you're listening to this on. We're just going to crack right into it. Graham, you said there that you thought early on that you might be on the trail of a winner. I'm going to test your little pop quiz hotshot to start us off. Who do you think the anti-post favourites were in the betting markets for the 2010 World Cup? I, I didn't know who were favourites going across there. What I did know was that I'd not not to the same, you know, shoulder to shoulder march. I'd been with this group, the majority of this group, Senna isn't there, for example, all the way through 2008 to their victory. And I felt that irrespective of them having been turned over a little a bit the year before in the Confederations Cup in a in a rainy, cold, muddy... Let's nobody forget that this is European summertime, but given that, you know, where this, the tip, the bottom, southernmost tip of this continent is, it's South Africa's wintertime. So irrespective of um, them being, I think, taken aback, surprised by the pitches, by the level of effort in the Confeds Cup um, a year previously, I felt that if Spain weren't Bookie's favourites, it's probably because Brazil would be the only team ever to win outside their continent, which I think Brazil had done it twice before in Sweden and in Japan, Korea, but no no other um, nation had won outside their continent. So if Spain weren't favourites, that should have been the reason why. Yeah, Spain were favourites. Spain were four to one favourites. That's narrowly ahead of Brazil and then joint third, fourth, or joint third, I suppose, Argentina and England. But you're right. I mean, Brazil in, in Sweden, 58, and then again in Japan and Korea in, in 02. No European team, it, it then follows, had ever won outside of Europe in the history of the World Cup. So it is a bit surprising that Spain were favourites. I guess it talks a little bit to the impact that they're winning 08 and also their clubs, particularly Barcelona, had had on everybody who watched football between the Euro and the World Cup. I'd have to point out as well that one of the things we've become accustomed to as Western Europeans is both um, cultural and climatic differences when a good side from wherever in the world tries to transfer. And, you know, Spain may be beautiful and warm some parts of the year, but it has winters too. And many of the players who were going to South Africa were going to conditions in which effectively they weren't going to be particularly thrown. It's not a very Anglo-Saxon country, Spain, but nonetheless, even if English is not naturally the predominant language in South Africa, it, it, it is increasingly so ahead of Afrikaans and the various different tribal languages. And therefore, many of the, um, the, the expression in Spanish, me defiendo, many of the Spanish players and staff could defend themselves in English. So they were going to a country where culturally their brand of football probably, that must have gone into the odds maker's mind that this was not like going to Mars and going, we have no idea what makes this country tick where we're supposed to produce our football. That has to have been in the calculations. Okay, so key to that brand of football is the place where they do their work day to day in between the games. So you described in the little teaser episode that we did about the sort of base at Potchefstroom. I was wondering if you could give us a little bit more detail, a little bit maybe of a, a sort of Lloyd Grossman 
through the keyhole tour of the of the training ground that they were. I'm not asking for the voice. I'm not asking for the voice. But if you want to go, who trains in a place like this? If you want to do it, you can do it. But yeah, just tell us a bit more about. And also, I want to know about the um, the groundwork, the prep, the sort of scouting that went into them securing. Because there's a there's a bun fight amongst the top nations, isn't there, before a tournament to try and figure out who's going to get which location for their for their base the the bun fight didn't um include potchester this is a place about 130 kilometers um west i think slightly southwest of uh, joburg and it was uh, a, 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 it's a it's a university campus but it is built such that every in every season it will either host um domestic rugby teams or visiting rugby teams, or visiting cricket teams. Uh, there'll be tournaments there. It's an athletics centre. And therefore, you know, in no way would you call it high-tech. In no way would you say this was um, a centre of world excellence, but it was well-appointed. Lots of pitches, um, basic, effectively, we'll talk more about this, student accommodation. Really, Spain's already world-class multimillionaire footballers lived in Spartan student accommodation, tiny rooms, uh, bare stone tiled floors, um, a minute television pinned to the wall, uh, single bed, not a lot of moving room in the, in the bedroom, a tiny little shower and bathroom, and that was it. Poch was selected because the, there was a, a hub airport. I forget, I think it might have been Tabo and Becky. Joburg, to, to my memory, had about three airports. Tabo and Becky was going to be Spain's hub airport. They felt that 130 kilometres wasn't an insurmountable distance to be away from their hub airport that would take them around the country. Um, by the time the, the draw was made, it was clear that they had a little bit of travelling, but they weren't the worst to suffer. And therefore, it, Poch, with its sports philosophy it's sports history too very tranquil um high veld was chosen but i i'm not aware of anybody else um jousting for this position because the majority of the other teams neil frankly wanted if if, if not luxury they had players who, who genuinely expected uh, the comparison to make is is the one where england didn't have a happy world cup you and I have, have talked to a couple of England internationals in our big interview series about it. I've talked to um, people who were in the administrative staff. And England, if I don't remember wrongly, were within shouting distance of commercial places like Sun City. They were in a beautiful hotel. The hotel was wonderfully appointed, yet they were bored and angry and they didn't like it. And unless they got out to go shopping or go to events, they, they, they were pawing the ground and there was definitely a stone in the shoe. They felt they had a Spartan life, whereas we've seen how the England squad lived. And it's, you know, it's 32 levels above how Spain lived. Yet, Spain were happy, they were unified, they, were, they had a thirst for training, 
which was matched by the availability of facilities, only just because uh, Annette Cumbrink, who was the head of the local organising committee, told us the story that because, remember, this was winter, as I pointed out, um, the beautiful training pitch that Spain had been down month after month to supervise the construction of, because all the other pitches were, were rugby quality pitches, they, they, they cleared the space, they planted the pitch, and, and four weeks before Spain arrived, it being it being winter, there was a massive flood of rain, and the Moy Riviere, the the beautiful river, uh, was just nearby. The banks were swelling. The whole thing was about to be swept away. Luckily, Spain had already said, "Look, if we're going to live in Pochestrum to the local ANC mayor, Petley and Petley, they'd said to him, "You must invest something like twenty six million rand in extending the the pretty disused." A military airfield so that we can fly in and out of there if we choose to uh, and therefore all the working guys effectively what you'd have called a navy gang who were laying the black stuff on the runway were just shipped in in lorries and minibuses across to the potch um, turf and they sandbagged the river to make sure that spain didn't arrive to a disaster you know, Stephen Henry and Alex Higgins could have played snooker on the pitch by the time Spain got there, but they didn't know how close that had been to to something something of a disaster. Just to go back to that comparison with England, then I mean the the sort of student accommodation that's almost a psychological choice from the Spanish national team, is it to give these guys? They, no, they didn't. They didn't say, lads, you're just going to have to lump this, or we don't want to put our boys in five-star accommodation in case they grow soft over the five, six, seven, eight weeks that we're here. No, everything, literally everything, is based around the training pitch. It's made abundantly clear to us that they have said, if we're in a sports complex where there's a good gym, where it's where we can impose security and where the life will be tranquil, we, we're not in a big city, and above all, above anything else, if there are a couple of brilliant training pitches where literally the ball will fly around like an ice hockey puck as quickly as we want it to so that we can train in the manner that we expect to play. Neil, that's why they chose Poch. If Poch hadn't had that pitch, but it had had everything else, they, don't they wouldn't anymore. have gone there. Yeah, I yeah, love correct. that. That's amazing, I love it. Um, okay, to explain, everybody, literally everybody at this World Cup, other than Spain and their first opponents, are going to get to play before Spain. So Spain are last in the queue, so they're hanging out at Poch, as are you, for a few days, a good few days beforehand. A lot of these tales are told in the book that Graham wrote for us at Backpage called Spain, the Inside Story of La Roca's Historic Treble. I'm going to mention that book a few times during this podcast mini-series. But I know from, from rereading this book recently for the first time in a little while that I think it was on day three of Spain's World Cup, so I think that's June 13. Um, that the access that we talked about puts you in a room that very few of us, even very few sports journalists, get to be inside, which is the in-person briefing that a referee gives to each national team before a tournament begins. So who did you get out of the, uh, the, the referee hat? Yeah, listen, if you see my top hat and tails and my scruffy little face, I'm a little bit of an artful dodger. Because we are told that we have to do some filming um, with the team that I'll describe in a minute this Sunday when they're, they're effectively getting a lot of downtime. They've had a massive long journey. Um, I think it takes about 11, 12 hours from Madrid 
to Joburg. They've they've travelled overland. They've been greeted by by dancing, ululating natives. They've been made to train quite hard. It reaches Sunday. And there's football on the TV. They're desperate to watch potential opponents. They can definitely get their feet up. It's just a moment to breathe. And yet, they get sent round the notice one. It's obligatory that you must arrive at the referee's briefing and immediately after that, there's going to be some filming. And all that we were obliged, the three of us, Glenn and Adam and I, Miami, I want to call them from now on, and I were, were obliged to do was, was film them after the referee's briefing. But Paloma, who, who is the Spanish FA uh, press officer, will say to us, look, at, at the beginning of this referee briefing, we don't have, we don't have any cameras with us um, here right in... The, even the Spanish Federation cameras weren't allowed into the, the, you know, the team uh, centre, HQ. Um, but you guys are allowed in. Will, will you do some filming? You know, film the first 10 minutes of the referee briefing and then come back for the, the green screen filming. We film a little bit of what is the entire Spain squad... Vicente Del Bosque and all his coaches sitting for an hour listening to the man, the Argentinian man who refereed the 2006 final in Berlin where Zidane is sent off for that headbutt into the chest of Matarazzi. Asterisk, he deserved it and I'd have done the same thing. And Elizondo is there to give them the same as you pointed out. Every team at the World Cup will get a, a tutorial saying, you know the rules, but some rules are being interpreted in this way during the World Cup. In case that's different from how your league or FA interprets them, here's your refresher course. And, and don't go to the referee and complain that you didn't know afterwards because here I am the law. Here is the word. And, with, and we film 10 minutes of that and then we stay. We just don't leave. Nobody cares. Nobody notices. But it means we get the full hour of him saying X and Y, obstruction, offside, handball. It's interesting. At the back, Cesc Fabregas and Gerard Piquet are sort of tearing little strips off their briefing paper, chewing them up and pinging them at people and trying to flick people's ear and all that kind of shit. Up the front, Petty Reina, Ica Casillas, Xavi and Xavi Alonso are literally leaning forward not just gleaning every detail from uh, Horacio Elizondo, the, the Argentine referee supervisor, but kind of looking for any glitches, looking for anything that they might, oh, hey, wait a second, we're not happy with that, or lads, lads, pay attention to this bit. And there's a little quiz at the end, and they knock sixes at the park. And at the end, he goes, right, is there any other questions? And Chavi's like, listen, Elizondo, we've sat here and listened to FIFA's laws and their interpretation. Now, you take this message back to Blatter. We've watched, I mean, Neil, numerically, you said every team played it before Spain's group. They were last to arrive. They were last to kick off. That was all true. I can't remember how many matches are in a round before Spain kick off. But let's say there were 16 matches prior to Spain kicking off of that order. What was a statistical fact was those games were averaging 1.6 goals per match, you know, which is atrocious. But since arriving, the Spaniards had watched them. And what they'd watched was the ball was moving really slowly. They put that down to two specific things. One, that the pitches weren't properly cut. They needed to be shaved. They didn't need to be a, a, a grade one, you know, with the Clippers. They needed to be skinhead. And Chavi was like, because you don't cut the grass properly, you leave it long. And because, because you don't water the grass properly when it's on days or on regions of the country where it's dry, you're giving a high premium to defensive-minded football teams because the ball moves really slowly. And that means, one, you're getting less entertainment. Two, 
you're you're encouraging defensive football and three you're getting fewer goals if you've called this and fifa did call this a ferrari of a tournament treat the pitch properly take that message back off you go it was brilliant it was absolutely brilliant to watch so that was part one of our sunday afternoon and at that stage Neil, I was like, yeah, I like it, man. That You can lead in training. You can lead via your skills. You can lead in big matches. You can score big goals. But even when it comes to off the pitch, these guys never sleep. Do you know what I mean? What we are charged with, uh, Glenn the Shadow Post, uh, Miami and I, we have to mark out an area on the floor uh, with tape, gaffer tape, where we want the players to stand so that when you see either on your television screen or if you're in a stadium on the jumbo screen, when you see the players' numbers being called out in the initial lineup announcement, they'll turn and look at camera, or they'll fold their arms, or they'll take one step forward. But all we had to do was we had to get the players, I think, to step forward, turn, fold their arms, and look at camera. Now, in itself, that's that you know that's not Mensa work, but. The- crowd control so they sat through an hour of referee briefing it's ended with them barking at the the argentinian advisor sent by blatter they're they're like their chests are puffed out we told him and they're ready to go and they're out of there man except i have to say to them sorry gents you you can't go anywhere this is a green screen moment now we're going to be about 12 minutes maximum setting up and then each of you got to take your turn and it's like it's grumbling with more intensity with each passing second, not minute. And we get set up so that the, the, the green screen is what you're filmed against so that you can impose whatever graphics, FIFA or, or Spain or whatever it might be, or UEFA in the championships, want to put behind them. And they have to stand in this green screen perfectly attired. It must be their first kit. There must be no jewellery. There must be no watches. They must be in a suit if they're going to wear a suit as the coach or they must wear a tracksuit if they're going to wear a tracksuit as a coach. So there are some rules. So I stand up as Miami is setting up the the, the, the lights and the camera and all that kind of stuff. Um, I'm explaining to them what the rules are. And even with them growling at me and even with my um, Aberdeen-based Spanish, I'm crystal clear what steps they've got to take they're dressed in their kit now, that's fine. But no jewellery, no earrings, no watches, none of that crap. But by the time we're set up and we're ready to go, Carlos Puyo is, is if there had been a window, he'd have jumped through it. He's like, right, I'm, uh, I'm first. Never mind who's captain, I'm first. Do me and, and, and do it right now. And, and he steps up to the thing and I'm like, Carlos, he said, never mind. So he's standing there and I see, I take a massive risk. He's wearing one of his own watches. I think the CP5, which cost they're about 22 grand a watch. And I've tried to, I've warned him in the briefing. I've tried to call him out. He's not having it. He's standing there. He's like, it's like this, isn't it? Arms folded, step forward. And so he, we, we film it. And he's like, right, we're done. Brilliant. I'm like, eh, now, Carlos, would you like to do it properly as I asked you to do the first time without your watch? And again, there's a deathly silence because everybody, the whole herd are watching. Pui looks around at, at the watch as if, what's that doing there? And all around him, his, his fellow players pick on him, not me. 
and they savage him. They're hooting with laughter. They're holding each other up. They're pointing at him. Called, Burro, que idiota, tuzudo, idiota eres, coño. And I'm like, oh, that's one of my nine lives used up. Probably two and a half of my nine lives used up. And he kind of smiles, kind of shrugs, takes his watch off, does it again. And then off we go. So suddenly the atmosphere is, is light. But Victor Valdez comes up and he's wearing a watch that I, I don't know if it was a Puyol watch, but again, it's a big clunky thing about the size of Milton Keynes around his wrist. And I'm like, do you want me to hold that for you? He's like, ah, you take that. He does his one first time, no problem. Doesn't laugh at all because they can shout at him because we're not recording the audio. So during, you know, the time everybody's trying to do it correctly, <laughs> there's a lot of grief being handed out. And a laugh means you've got to do it again. At any rate, but Tabaldas does his one and he's out of the room and, and gone for about six steps before he goes, oh, runs back in and, and jams his hand out as if to say, keep my watch. And I'm like, hold on, hold on, do you think I was going to steal it? And he just kind of looks at me and goes, eh, maybe. And takes his watch and walks out. We complete the filming. A lot of the players are like really friendly and helpful. And frankly, Neil, I mean, I'm no longer Jonah Louie in the kitchen at parties. I'm in the party. And you've got a free watch. Um, I want to hang on to Carlos Puyo because when I was going through the book, there was just a little snapshot of Puyo that jumped out from the next day, Monday, June the 14th. And you're watching training and they've, they've done their hard work and they're playing a small-sided game. And I don't know what goes on, whether it's a, a missed chance or maybe just defeat, but Carlos Puyo kicks one of the goal frames over. I guess there must be portable sort of small-sided goal frames. So there's two things I want to ask you about. One is the general intensity level at these training sessions that are so close to what's going to be, for some of these players, the biggest game of their careers so far. And in particular, where Puyo sits on that kind of like intensity meter and whether or not, you know, other guys are taking their lead from him. Okay, we'll come back to this because there are a lot of training sessions over a victorious World Cup, but it, 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 it's a tapered thing. So, for example, in the one that you're talking about, they've trained twice in a day, two days before the, um, before the match in Durban. They train in the morning when th there is a little bit of physical work, a little bit of physical work, and there'll be some drills and then there'll be a, a full-scale practice game. And training to them is about practice and it's about refinement and it's about intensity. Or it certainly was for those three winning tournaments. Maybe it became a little bit less so in 2014, but that's another story. So that nighttime session that you're talking about was really intense and it was about com getting competitive edge. That, that anger of Puyol was that irrespective of them going in as Bookie's favourites, which I didn't know, and partly because back in Spain, they were getting a little bit Scotland 1978 in that some parts of the media were celebrating a win before they'd even got there. And that and this gets mentioned by the coaching staff and the players. There's pressure, Neil. And I think that, you know, their first game is against Switzerland, a rival that, you know, is waiting in Durban. They've, their most recent two big games have been two draws against Italy. That means you automatically upgrade the respect that you might have had otherwise for Switzerland. And Spain, you know, these, these anecdotes are related to one another. They didn't give Elizondo a doing to show off or, or look like Billy big time. They were like, hold on a fucking second. If these pitches aren't improved, 
we lose the advantage that separates us from the rest. So when you when Puyol boots the training uh, goals over, it is about a goal conceded. And it's about the ferocity. It's about generating a level of competitive aggression without having yet played a competitive game because they've come away from um, the training camp in Austria that we mentioned. And, and don't forget, that they they don't yet see Iniesta as the winning ingredient, but they see him as one of the four, five, six best players in the world. He's been injured against Poland in the training camp. It, officially, they give out a, a recuperation time that takes him beyond the Switzerland game. So even though Iniesta is desperate to work overtime, which he is doing to reach the Switzerland game, Spain are going in, feeling the pressure, looking at the pitches, not liking the idea of it, doing a double session. They're competitive beasts anyway. And they don't know if Iniesta's going to make it. And therefore, there's tension in the air, for sure. So that kind of takes us to Durban, decamping from, from Poch to Durban in final preparation for the, for the match. And you mentioned this focus that Dabowski seems to have around this time, which is a sort of um, tension between the level of expectation in Spain versus what he and, frankly, everybody watching this tournament at this point is witnessing, which are tight matches in almost every instance and so he's he can maybe see something coming down the tracks and it would be fairly easy to see Switzerland coming down the tracks because they're massive <laughs> I think you make the point that they use 14 players in this game or they're going to use 14 players in this game I think 11 of them are 6 feet tall or more this is a team that have come through qualifying with one defeat in their 10 qualification games, albeit it's a, a bit of a dolly of a group, but still they have to, they have to get through it. So they top their group to qualify. And at the helm is, is Otmar Hitzfeld, who has previous with Del Bosque, right? Well, remember that you know, Del Bosque is a Sergio Busquets-style midfielder during his career at Real Madrid. Uh, and a couple of times... He's made very temporary coach, but it's only when John Toshak is sacked in 1999, midway through the season, when the recently deceased Lorenzo Sanz, president who won two Champions League for Real Madrid before Florentino Perez, takes over mid-season. He looks around and he reaches within the cantera, within the, the youth system to promote Del Bosque to be coach. And, and at that stage, he takes over a really ailing Real Madrid in that the squad is absolutely dandy. But... It hasn't been working with Toshak. They're going to finish the league in a, in a pretty impoverished position. And in 99-2000, halfway through the season, they um, they face a Bayern Munich side in the group. There were two groups, um, two, uh, a two-group stage in the Champions League of, of, of that time. How they got away with that, I don't know. And Otmar Hitzfeld's Bayern Munich pump Vincente Del Bosque's Real Madrid 4-1 in Bavaria and wait for it at the Bernabeu Hitzfeld's Bayern Munich come and this is the same um, Bayern Munich which you know has come so close um, the year before at Camp Nou Sami Kafur beating the turf in anguish as Scheringham and Soska score in the last seconds and this is this remains not only a deeply powerful well coached squad but they've got a real stone in their shoe about winning this tournament so they come to the Bernabeu score four again 3-1 up at half time they put eight past Real Madrid in two group games but they lose 
um, by a single goal in the semi-final to a rejuvenated three at the back uh, Real Madrid, where I, I'm not saying Hitzfeld was outcoached, but Del Bosque took a risk and played three at the back with two wing-backs that was sufficient given Anelka's goal in Bavaria to knock Bayern Munich out. But it was part of a pattern of, I think, three times in four seasons, Del Bosque and Hitzfeld do battle between Bayern Munich and Real Madrid, and each game is, is gargantuan. Whichever way it goes, and over the course it goes, it flows in favour of Bayern Munich and in favour of Real Madrid. And, and in those ones that I talked about, of course, Real Madrid go on to beat Valencia in the final, having knocked Hitzfeld's team out in the semi-final. So when they come together in 2010, yes, they've got past, but what Del Bosque has learned is that Hitzfeld, irrespective of his resources, is an extremely clever tactical coach who reads opposition very, very well. And this is why, when I was in the room in the Moses Mabida Stadium um, the day before the game, listening to Sergio Ramos speak um, at that stage, still playing right full back for Spain, that's why he said this. We don't need to go into this first game of the World Cup either full of nerves and fear or full of competitive rage. We need to show respect to every single rival, irrespective of their reputation. You just never know which rival has the potential to cause a big shock. So Neil, you know what, what maybe the scene I slightly want to set, and we're coming to the end of this episode, but the scene I want to set is that Ramos was speaking there in a, in a stadium that you could see from our Riverside Hotel because we're on the bank of the the, the Indian Ocean. Um, there's a river that flows through Durban out into its tributary with the Indian Ocean. And we're just on the banks of that river looking down a hill. When I say we... Um, Miami and I and uh, the Shadow are, are all billeted in Spain's hotel. And the stadium where Ramos was talking there is is where Spain will make its debut in the 2010 World Cup um, the following afternoon against Switzerland. And I'll be there with my camera in Miami um, filming behind the goal. I'm t- 10 metres away from um, Iker Casillas's then girlfriend, current wife, um, who is working for a TV station and there's a big flurry in the in the British media of all places saying that whatever happens in this Spain game, maybe Cacassias was slightly affected by the presence of his girlfriend behind the goals. Now, having been there and watched the whole game from pitch side, bullshit. <laughs> uh, so you're right, Cacias is in goals. Let's run through the teams. Uh, Ramos at right back, as you said. I guess this is the last tournament um, he plays for Spain at right back because Puyol's going to be on his way before 2012 comes around. But in centre back, we do have Gerard Piquet and Carlos Puyol. Joan Captavilla on the left side of the defence. Then there's a Doble Pavote, we'll get to that, Busquets and Alonso. Ahead of them, David Silva, Xavi and Iniesta. What a three. And up front, the greatest Spain strike of all time, David Villa. Graham, have you got Switzerland there? I think it was 4-4-1-1. Yeah, it's Benaglio, Lichsteiner, Senderos, you'll remember him from the Arsenal team, Grichting, Ziegler, Barnetta, he was always tranquilo, in Gokaninler, Hoggle, Fernandes, Derdioc, and up front, Kufo. Okay, so Graham and I have gone back over this game, and it's a real curio. I mean, it ends Switzerland 1-Spain 0. Spain have had 24 attempts and 8 of them on target, 
but they're not creating that many guilt edge chances. Looking back, what's your sense from that game? How did you feel during it? Did you still feel like you were watching a World Cup winner? Everything's conditioned by the fact that, no, I, I want to be clear here that there's no Monday morning uh, quarterbacking from me. I, I did say that although we went into the tournament, I, I believed that Spain were um, champion material in terms of ability and mentality. Uh, it wasn't until probably the third group game that I thought, yeah, I think they'll win this now. So, no, I didn't go into the game even, if I'm completely truthful, thinking I'm watching the champions here. The first thing that must be said is most of us, me included, don't get to watch World Cup games pitch side, still less from behind the goal. So you're automatically conditioned by... Just as the first time you watch football from an ele a really elevated position, everything looks easy because you can see space. You have to avoid a temptation to shout, shout out, put it there. Look, there he's... You go right back down to, to pit side and you're, you're standing and what you see is the madding crowd. You're not far from it. You see the madding crowd. You see a flurry of legs. It's difficult to see space or angles. Your appreciation for what makes visionary footballers stand out to us goes up, goes up very quickly. And on the day, all I would say is that initially Spain looked a little bit hurried, a little bit nervous. They did, they smashed uh, the bar. Uh, Benalio's bar should have broken when Xavi rolls one across from a set play into the path of Xavi Alonso. Corner kick to Spain, more pressure brought to bear on that Swiss goal. And it's Xavi Alonso! Xavi Alonso again. Xavi Alonso, the closest Spain have come. The only time I've ever seen the bar hit that firmly was Eric Black against Real Madrid in the 1983 Cup Winners' Cup final, and I'm glad to have got that in there. Things weren't just quite right. And Switzerland were absolutely clear about their game plan, and a phrase that Xavi had used to me previously came to my mind. He talked about when, playing for Barcelona principally, but Spain were playing a very Barcelona style, apart from the double pivote. Xavi said, if we go 1-0 down, irrespective of how good people think we are, irrespective of how often we win, I get nervous. Because if it's not our day, if we as little guys, Iniesta, for example, Puyol's not tall, Xavi, um, up front Villa is slight, Silva. If we don't do things perfectly, because we're little guys, we'll lose. Gufo. Brilliant opportunity here for Dirty who's lost it. The Swiss have scored! Gelson Fernandez with a priceless goal. Goalkeeper had to be committed, he was, so was Piquet. And Gelson Fernandez was in the right place at the right time to make the most of some horrible Spanish defending. Are we on for one of the great World Cup shocks? for many a year and on that day things were not perfect the, the, the mistake that happens is a ball that aerially Busquets should do better on he should probably run with his man when the break comes it's pure chaos keystone cops between Casillas and Piquet by the time that Switzerland score it's an ugly looking goal I think Piquet takes at least two kicks in the face as Del Bosque throws on attacking players 
and and says we'll overwhelm them up front and and taking Busquets off about seven eight minutes approximately after the goal a couple of things happen they get overloaded up front and the, the, that control of midfield that usually drags teams apart doesn't happen the other thing that happens is that he opens a can of worms both within the squad and back at home about the midfield and whether the midfield should be Iniesta Xavi Busquets or whether the midfield should be Busquets Alonso Xavi Switzerland have not won any of their 18 international meetings with Spain they have now it's the big shock of World Cup 2010. Final score, Spain nil, Switzerland won. And effectively, a game that Spain could easily have drawn or won on a day that was normal. It's an abnormal day and they lose 1-0. And they go into the tunnel knowing that no nation in the history of the World Cup has lost its first game and gone on to lift the trophy. So the mood is is bleak and something that's embellished on my memory forever because you can see that Switzerland are differently sized. But when you're in the tunnel and, and these Swiss guys loom over, um, Albert Banage is in the film that we made, Take the Ball, Pass the Ball, out of the book that you commissioned me to write about Barca, said that you could put Alba... Um, Villa and Messi, <laughs> one after the other on each shoulder, on each other's shoulders, and you wouldn't make a normal sized guy. And he was joking a little, a, a little bit crudely. But I tell you something: these man mountains of Switzerland in the tunnel, when close up next to Iniesta or Silva, just made me think: how, how did they do it? How did the wee men triumph? And it reinforced my, uh, my willingness to watch what made gifted small players of 5'6", five, 5'7", five, able to beat not just a giant, but a team full of absolute giants. Like Mourinho always insisted on at Chelsea, I want minimum of 10 players over six feet. Hitzfeld had it that day, and one of them, Lichsteiner, just about harpooned Spain's World Cup bid there and then. There you go. I mean, you mentioned the the substitutions that Del Bosque made as he tried to turn that match around, and that's the key one. That's got to be a huge red flag for the staff, the players, the fans of this team that have been wrapping this guy in cotton wool for months and months before this tournament even began, right? Well, it, there's there's two things to say before we conclude here, because, the, you know, Lichsteiner, um, without going out to do the little man, just sails through him. In the book I wrote that it was like watching an ocean-going liner coming into contact with a rowboat. And I don't think it was Malalecce, I'm going to do this kid, but he just crunches through him. Iniesta goes down, he gets treatment. And to answer your question specifically, and for anybody who didn't listen to the, the introductory episode, this is part one, but the introductory episode of Iniesta was delineating that the importance of, of him going off after treatment that was supposed to check, can he can he play on? Because they wanted him to play on. He goes, no, I can't. To anybody on the outside, and I count myself, that was, oh, look, he's been injured throughout the season. He was injured against Poland. He only just made it back to this game. Maybe that's him out for three, four games now. But for anybody around him, the fear was, 
bollocks. He's been as much damaged mentally for the last year to the extent that his depression was Churchill's black dog on his shoulder. It, it, it truly was psychologically in danger of breaking him. Here he is in the first game. <laughs> They've lost and he's been taken off injured. I think the shockwaves that went through the camp were as much about, well, even if he's fit again, maybe this is the straw that breaks the camel's back. Now, spoiler, it turns out not to be. But on that afternoon, in in greyish, rainy, humid Durban, things were pretty bleak. Let's leave Spain there with things being pretty bleak in Durban after losing by a single goal to the Swiss. We're going to take a quick break. We'll be back very briefly for a quick wrap of what else was happening in the World Cup in 2010. A lot can happen in the next three years. Like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare tri-term medical plans are available for these changing times. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer budget-friendly, flexible coverage for people who are in between jobs or missed open enrollment. The plans last nearly three years in some states, with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. So for whatever tomorrow brings, United Healthcare tri-term medical plans may be for you. Learn more at UH1.com. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number smart beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number limited edition smart bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Welcome back. So that's Spain's progress up to and including their first game. Hasn't gone well for them, but it was an interesting start to the 2010 World Cup. Graham mentioned during the first part that goals were hard to come by. Before Spain took the field against Switzerland, there'd been an average of 1.6 goals per game, which is low. But the tournament had started with a special, special story. That was South Africa's opener as hosts against Mexico. Graham, I know you've told me before that when you're embedded with Spain at these tournaments, you really don't see much of the rest of the tournament. Did you sit down and catch the opener? Can you remember much about it? I can. It was very important. It came on a day when it was um, in between uh, training sessions and because Glenn, the shadow post, um, our fixer, driver, um, bodyguard, assistant cameraman, was a proud South African, we were kind of forced to watch it. And if I can tell you that Sibuye Shabalala scored a goal that gets remembered because when he strikes it, coming in off the left wing, with so much power that Oscar Perez hasn't got hope in the Mexico goal 
I think it slightly takes away from the when people generally remember the strike and the eruption of joy around the country and the blooming what do you call them mad kazoos that they all had the long trumpets but vuvuzelas that's come back to me oh my word Neil um, you know the move was very good the way in which they draw Mexico in the midfield pass um, to release Shabalala and his running onto it and his calm finish was a really beautiful moment. It was one of the more exciting, only two goals, but it was one of the more more exciting games. If the, either of the two keepers has a standout game, it's um, Kune, the the South African um, goalie who, who's absolutely fantastic. And in the end, Rafa Marquez gets an equaliser. South Africa don't get their win. But Shabalala, one of the things that I learned in, in South Africa is that when people... When when we say to each other, um, "How's it going?" or "Can you do that?" we'll we'll be like, "Okay," or "Cool," something like that. In South Africa, one of the common terms is "sharp, sharp," and you get "sharp, sharp" thrown at you fifty times a day. Could you do that? Is everything okay? Um, I'll see you tomorrow. Blah, blah. Sharp, sharp, and "sharp, sharp" becomes one of the phrases of the tournament much more than "ayoba," which is a phrase you're you're told. South Africans, black South Africans use a lot. Sharp, sharp is is a real phrase of the tournament. And sharp, sharp to our three years sounds like shabalala. So we use shabalala from that goal onwards right throughout the tournament to say yes or okay. Shabalala becomes our exclamation of contentment or happiness. And you're right, it's a damn good story, but they don't win. It's here to break at pace. Medisa turning it through. It's on here now. The goalkeeper's beaten. And South Africa have their first goal. Sipiwi Shabalala. On the day he wins his 50th cap. Has given South Africa a glorious moment. Wonderful ball through. The goalkeeper at first advanced. What a terrific finish. And the whole place has just erupted. Um, let's look at England. As we said at the start, they were sort of seeded by the bookmakers to be a semi-final team at this tournament under Fabio Capello. So they're up against USA in their first round of games. Um, Steven Gerrard scores a very cute opening goal with a, after a fantastic round-the-corner assist from friend of the big interview, Emil Heskey. Chance here for England. Score! The goal from Steven Gerrard is just the boost England required. Delightful execution. Rooney looked for a touch, and then when it was played across to him, it was just a little nick of the boot. Delightfully laid on by Emil Heskey, who proves his worth to England yet again. It's Gerard, the goal scorer. But then Rob Green spills a Clint Dempsey shot. Well, they have a chance here. There are four forward, and this could be menacing with a good turn from Dempsey. Tries to get away from Gerrard, fires it in hard alone, a desperate mistake by Robert Green. Clint Dempsey brings the United States level into a moment of horror for the goalkeeper, a moment of unlikely joy for the United States. There seems no danger whatsoever. It's 1-1 here. I didn't watch this live. We, we, we were um, filming training at the time this went on. When Wayne Rooney is crying for the ball and Heskey chooses to clip a little nick 
pass into the path of Gerard. That summed up why so many people liked playing with Emil Heskey. And like you were pointing out, I think he's we established in the big interview, which people want to go back into the archive and listen to uh, the big interview with Emil Heskey. He comes across as a really interesting, uh, multi-layered articulate guy who I enjoy you and I enjoyed meeting very much indeed in Manchester and that assist is top class really top class because he can't quite see he has to peripherally imagine that where Gerard's run is and the clip ball that Gerard finishes from is absolutely brilliant USA typically I think in the seven minute highlight package I've watched back um a little bit like Switzerland knew their opponents intimately were very athletic knew how to frustrate and close down and but for Rob Green, it ends up 1-0 to Capello's mob. And who knows how that momentum mood change potentially helps England go a little bit further. I don't know. What we didn't know at the time was exactly how unhappy a camp it was. And it was. In terms of just bored and um, not engaged and wishing they were somewhere else in general. And poor old Rob Green, um, a good goalkeeper an extremely interesting character, an extremely likeable man, both in football terms and just outside his profession. And Yeah, it's the kind of moment that Paul Robinson talked about when he was on the big interview. By the way, England in that game use combined starting 11 and subs. They use five big interview guests. We spoke to James Milner who started the game. We spoke to Peter Crouch who came off the bench. Uh, we've mentioned Emil Heskey. Ledley King is at the back and Jamie Carragher. Mike wants it, gets it, will bring it in, and drives it in! What a goal! It was going to take something special, and Mike has just produced it! Look at the angle here, everybody, with the exception of Mike expected the ball across, and instead, it's smashed home. But what a strike from Mike What a way to finally get Brazil up and running. Yeah, and that leaves us with of the ones that we talked about, um, Brazil against North Korea, and, and what a tournament when both North and South Korea qualify. Um, this, I, I think, was one of the ones that potentially um, echoes a little bit longer in, in, in Xavi's mind, simply because Brazil don't look too bad. Um, in uh, Luis Fabiano, they've got a striker who I hugely, hugely enjoyed. And who, for Sevilla in particular, as well as when he goes home to Brazil in club football, um, showed himself to be an elite level club footballer. But at international level, he had a constant battle with doubters who, whether he scored or they won, seemed to have it in for him. And I think in this tournament, um, this was one of the points where his reputation is is pretty fatally undermined as far as playing for the Canarinha is concerned and in this game it's not really him that threatens against a North Korea side who defend for their lives and the standout things for me um, Mykon finishes really well when he goes wide and fakes the cross and puts it off the outside of his right boot and it goes in at the keeper's near post but Rubinho's pass is a link back to what we were saying about Heskey. Rubinho's opening up pass for Elano to score is a thing of beauty. It should be up in the in El Prado or in the Louvre. Rubinho able to turn and slide it in. It's a wonderful ball for Elano. 2-0 Brazil. A goal of real precision. 
A Korean defence that has been solid all night, unpicked with absolute quality and finished in style by Ilana. And then uh, right at the end, um, all our favourite all-time North Korean uh, player, uh, G, his, his little left foot finish meant that the scoreline looked a little bit tighter than the game had been but Brazil never cut loose and the ball moved a little bit slowly and and defensive football was given a premium not much to North Korea's uh, benefit because they lose that game of course they don't qualify but Brazil must have had a taste of what Xavi was saying to Horacio Elizondo in in warning that if the if the ball doesn't move quickly sometimes great teams get blunted and that's what happened in that game. Okay, we're going to see what happens to great teams and not so great teams in the next round of games in our next episode, which is going to be out on the feed to coincide with Spain's second group game against Honduras. So that'll be with you on Sunday, June 21st. Until then, thanks very much for listening. I hope you're enjoying this mini-series. For now, sharp, sharp, Grim Hunter. Shabalala! the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTER Exclusions apply. See site for details. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.